Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update Breast Cancer Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Ms. Emily Olson for her take on a number of recent changes in treatment options for patients with breast cancer. And to begin, she presented a 43-year-old woman from her practice. She presented with a couple of multifocal areas in the left breast. She did have implants in place, and so they were sitting on top of the implant right underneath the skin. And she went in for a mammogram. It did show throughout all the workup T2 disease. We did biopsy that, and it was positive for ER and PR, as well as HER2 at 3+. And what was the thinking there in terms of the overall global plan of what was going to be done? She knew she wanted a mastectomy right off the bat. So, you know, we could have done treatment after surgery, but with the new addition of pertuzumab to the market and the only the neoadjuvant setting at that time, we chose to use neoadjuvant chemotherapy first. So you're referring to the fact that the FDA has now approved the use of the anti-HER2 antibody pertuzumab as neoadjuvant treatment preoperatively for patients with HER2-positive disease. But this drug, which has shown very exciting benefits combined with trastuzumab and chemotherapy and metastatic disease, currently is not FDA-approved post-op as adjuvant therapy, at least until we see clinical trial results in the adjuvant setting. So many patients and physicians take advantage of the FDA indication by choosing to receive their treatment pre-op so they can get pertuzumab. What was this lady's life situation at that time in terms of work and family? She's a nurse, and she's married with two boys. I believe they were 9 and 11 at the time of treatment. Very, very supportive husband. What kind of nursing did she do? Outpatient surgical nursing. Can you talk a little bit about how you prepared her, what you told her to expect, and sort of the patient education piece that you did with her prior to her getting started on treatment? So I tell them you're going to have 12 weekly treatments, and every week you'll be receiving paclitaxel and trastuzumab. We talk about with paclitaxel that at the low dose weekly, the most common side effects can be numbness and tingling in the fingers and the toes that can become progressive. We discuss that if the patient begins to develop motor neuropathies, such as unsteadiness on their feet, difficulty buttoning buttons or zipping zippers, I need to know about that right away, because at that time, we either will pause therapy or reduce doses to try and prevent significant permanent toxicity. I talk that they will start losing hair with paclitaxel. Some people lose all of it. Some people have thinning. It really varies. We then talk about the nail changes where you can have darkening of the nails or you can actually have lifting of the nails. And I say if they start lifting and draining, I want them to watch them very carefully because if they become red, we need to be aware of infection. I say for the draining, if they begin to drain or smell, I recommend that they soak their fingernails in a combination of either three parts water to one part vinegar or three parts water to one part bleach a few times a day, and that will not only dry up the drainage, but it will also reduce any smell. If they begin to start losing the fingernails, but they're stuck at the base or the cuticle, we will refer them to the hand clinic for a nerve block and removal, because as you can imagine, they're getting caught on everything and very uncomfortable. For the trastuzumab, we talk about the acute reversible risk of heart failure and why we do do an echocardiogram every three months. We do a baseline and then every three months thereafter while on trastuzumab. And every time I see them, I ask about PND, orthopnea, new swelling, new shortness of breath, palpitations, things like that. And then with the pertuzumab, what we've commonly seen mostly with the pertuzumab is the weeks that they get pertuzumab, which is every third week. I've noticed a lot of patients are more fatigued during that treatment or after that treatment. So I educate them on that as well. 
What about diarrhea? I have heard people talk about that. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen as much of it when we're using pertuzumab with paclitaxel. I've seen more of it when we're using it in the metastatic situation with docetaxel. I see a lot more of it. I don't think it's quite as pronounced, at least from what I've seen so far, with paclitaxel in the weekly setting in that situation. And of course, there are regimens that include docetaxel Mm -hmm. instead of paclitaxel, but Mm -hmm. also carboplatin in the, for example, the TCH regimen. Anything additionally you say to those patients who are getting docetaxel or carboplatin? We talk about blood counts quite a bit. You know, can see quite a bit of effect on the white blood cell count and sometimes the platelets. I also talk a lot about neuropathy, especially if they're getting with a taxane or if they've been previously exposed to a taxane, really watching for neuropathy. And then you give the AC, the doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide also preoperatively? Yes. And what do you say about that part of it? We talk about, and I explained to them that typically the doxorubicin cyclophosphamide portion is typically more difficult than the first portion with the paclitaxel, trastuzumab, pertuzumab. But we talk about, you know, in contrast to the trastuzumab where that's a reversible acute heart failure, I talk about with the doxorubicin, there's a chance of a permanent heart failure that may develop 10 or more years down the line. So we really focus on that. I also talk to them about mouth sores. And we strongly recommend the use of chewing ice or popsicles during the doxorubicin administration. And I tell them to call me if they do develop mouth sores that are impacting their eating or drinking, because then I will give them a combination mouthwash. At home, they can use things such as saltwater rinses or baking soda rinses, which can help to a point. But if they get severe enough, then I'll give them a prescription mouthwash. I also tell them that if you haven't lost your hair already, more than likely you will lose your hair now. I warned that when they urinate for about the first 24 hours, sometimes the urine is red or orange because the doxorubicin itself is red when it is administered. And then we talk about the real small risk of a secondary hematologic malignancy with the use of the doxorubicin. Getting back to the trastuzumab, pertuzumab, what do you tell them or what have you observed in terms of infusion reactions? I have only had one, and that was in a woman that we were using in the metastatic site. So she was getting the docetaxel, pertuzumab, trastuzumab. And we had a hard time, you know, nailing what would happen. She didn't have an actual transfusion reaction, but the next day she would have a horrible fever. And we were trying to figure out really what was that all about. And eventually we think she was having some sort of an immune response to the antibodies. But I have not had anybody actually in the treatment suite yet to have a reaction. We do pre-medicate with Tylenol, however, and do have Benadryl available if needed. So what actually happened with this lady as she received treatment? She did fine. She received, so we do, for pre-medication for the treatment, the days that she got paclitaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, she would get pre-medications with Pepsid, Benadryl, and steroids. So she would get that before her paclitaxel. And then when she started her anti-HER2 drugs, they would give some Tylenol. And she tolerated it just fine. She had no treatment-related reactions whatsoever. And any signs of neuropathy? Towards the end, about treatment 10 to 11, she started having some mild tingling more on the day of treatment, but it would go away by the next day. It would just kind of come and go. And already now, less than a year out, it's basically gone. What about her hair? She lost all of it. She did get herself a very, very cute wig. And so she was able to, you know, cope somewhat with having a very natural looking wig, but she did lose all of her hair. She lost, you know, most of it during the paclitaxel, trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and then all of it was gone by the time she started her AC. What about her energy level and fatigue? She did end up, while on doxorubicin cyclophosphamide, going on to short-term disability because of the fatigue from those doublet agents. 
So she was working up until that point? Mm-hmm. Yep. Her employer was so great in that they would let her kind of decide the day of work if she's going to come in or not because she wanted to work. And I told her, I said, the more active you are, typically the better you're going to do and the less deconditioning you're going to have to make up for when the treatment's over. And what was going on with the primary breast mass as she was being treated? Were you re-imaging it? We do not. Off trial, we don't re-image them in the interval. On trials, we do. But the 2.1 centimeter mass, you could feel shrinking. The one that was smaller, the sub-centimeter one, that was right along the edge of the areola, about the 11 o'clock position, that one didn't do much at first. And so we were questioning, was this really a malignancy? Because like I said, that had never been biopsied. But once we gave her the AC, that one melted away as well. And then at the time of surgery... There was a little bit of disease in that little one remaining that was ER positive, HER2 positive. And so you could feel these lesions? Yep, both of them are palpable. How was this picked up? Did she feel it or is it seen on a mammogram? She felt it. So she felt both or just the big one? The big one. She didn't feel the small one. Hmm. And was this worked up right away or was there any delay? Nope, right away. Hmm. Okay. What was her sort of personal reaction as she was going through this experience? You could tell she was struggling a lot with anxiety, a lot also with kind of personal appearance. And we worked through that. She did lose a lot of weight. She was already a small person and she lost a lot of weight from stress. She was eating, but she was so stressed that she was losing more weight. So every time I saw her, you know, it was not only treating the cancer, but really, you know, emotionally, how was she doing? How was her husband? What help does she have at home? All of that, because, you know, from a physical standpoint, she was doing overall okay. But from an emotional standpoint, you could tell she was struggling. So she was losing her appetite? Yeah. Hmm. And what kind of support was she receiving from her family and in the workplace and from her friends? Her husband was at almost every appointment. If he could get away, he's a construction worker. So if he could get away, he'd come to every appointment. Otherwise, she had her sister with her. So there's always somebody with her that she was never alone, which I thought was so important. It was not only to have a driver, but to have that support and someone to ask questions. I never met her boys, but I did suggest that, you know, throughout treatment, I said, bring them with, because I think, you know, she had said that they had questions. And I said, bring them with so they can see where mom's going, where mom gets treatment, you know, that it's not really a scary place per se, you know, because you think chemotherapy and you, you know, automatically go to the worst. But she never did bring the boys. And I never explored that further as to whether or not she was protecting herself in that or protecting them. Any sense about what level, you mentioned that the work, they were allowing her to alter her schedule. Mm -hmm. Any sense about what kind of reaction she got at work and how that went? Actually, yeah. Everybody knew that she was having the treatments, even, of course, the patients as well. And actually, they had, when she was in the midst of chemotherapy, they had a support so-and-so day where they all wear pink long sleeve shirts underneath their scrub tops for the day, just in honor of her, and then gave her a giant gift basket with spa things and things for the family and all of that. So they rallied around her and really helped her through this, and it was amazing, something you don't see anymore at very many places. Hmm, Interesting. You said she had a lot of concerns about her appearance. Mm -hmm. Did she verbalize concerns to you about, you know, sort of the long term and the potential of her dying of the disease? Not really, That didn't seem to be really what upset her at the beginning, because at the beginning, she called me about every day with so many questions, and a lot of them went back to hair loss and implants and all of that, but she never really focused on really the long-term implications. So what happened at surgery, and what exactly do they do when they do mastectomy in a patient who has an implant? 
They take the implant out, and then depending on the chest size of the woman, they will either put a new implant in after they removed all the breast tissue or an expander. And I believe she had an expander put in, if I recall, to get her chest large enough to put the right size implant in for symmetry with the other side. Can you talk a little bit more about how the expander works? So... I don't know quite as much about it since I'm not in the surgical area, but from what I understand, it is, if you will, a pocket that they put in, the device of a pocket and then a port. And then every so often they go see the plastic surgeon and they will put in either saline or air to expand that pocket and to really make really a faux breast, if you will, to really stretch out that chest wall. And that once the muscle and the skin have been stretched out enough, they'll go back to the OR, take out the expander and put an implant in. And then you said she had a little bit of residual disease. What was in the breast at surgery? How did they evaluate the axilla? They do a sentinel node, and we have frozen pathology at our facility. So while she's asleep on the table, they take the sentinel node, bring it over to pathology, and the pathologist will say if it looks clean or not. That does eventually go over to final pathology, but at that time, that interim, when she's on the table, they can then decide do they need to go forward to a full dissection, or can they stop there with the sentinel node? And then with the management of the breast cancer itself, they do the same thing. You know, when we do a biopsy of the lesions, we put a clip in. Now, of course, we didn't biopsy that second lesion. And now that I think about it, I think it was because it was too close to the implant, if I remember right now, and they didn't want to put a needle in it. But what they do is they go in, they find those two areas, and again, bring it to frozen section and say, are the margins negative, yes or no? If not, they keep, you know, resecting. If yes, then we're okay from that standpoint. So you were mentioning the anxiety she had. Was she receiving any kind of, you know, psychotropic medication? Yeah, she was on fluoxetine, and she'd been on that for about 10 years or so. And overall, she was managing with it very well. So what happened post-op? So after surgery, because she was premenopausal and estrogen sensitive, her only option for endocrine therapy was tamoxifen. And as we know, tamoxifen uses the CYP2D6 pathway, but so does her fluoxetine. And so we knew at that point that we needed to transition her to an alternative antidepressant or anti-anxiolytic. And so often with tamoxifen, we will use either venlafaxine or citalopram. And so we transitioned her to venlafaxine, but we did utilize psychology to help with that because she did have some difficulties with increased anxiety coming up fluoxetine until the venlafaxine took hold. So we did work with psychiatry and they helped us kind of wean her over or transition her over, if you will. So what was going on in terms of the reconstruction or the implant? What happened? So she did have an implant put in on the left, and then the right side just stayed with the implant that she had in the first place. She did not have a mastectomy on the right. She kept her breast tissue on the right. So plastic surgery takes over from the surgical perspective. And like I said, they will expand her if she needs to be, or they will do their reconstruction independent of what we're doing. We just work with timing, but usually with reconstruction while in endocrine therapy, there's no issue with timing, and they go ahead and pre-schedule things as they need. Now she's 43 years old. Mm -hmm. Did she have BRCA testing? She did, and she was negative. Right, because I guess under age 45, that seems like it's pretty routine. Is that mm -hmm. the way you approach it? Yeah, you know, we do it based on age. We also do it based on family history. And sometimes, regardless of that, the patient is still very nervous and they want to meet with medical genetics because we don't order the testing ourselves. We send them to medical genetics. Then they will go meet with medical genetics, and medical genetics will help them decide, you know, based on family history, what is the percent chance you may be a mutation carrier? And then from there on, they decide if they'll go forth with testing or not. And she had no family history? No, she was the only one. 
Right. Although I noticed that, you know, the recommendations for BRCA testing vary based on the type of tumor. And I guess if it's triple negative, ERP or HER2 negative, they'll Mm -hmm. test people under the Mm -hmm. age of 60. Mm -hmm. And we do. We get a little bit nervous about that. And we will, you know, even if the guidelines aren't quite fitting, we will still recommend, you know, why don't you meet with genetics and just learn more about it? It's how we approach it. And, you know, then they really nail it down and say, this is what we believe, you know, and we decided to go forth or we didn't decide to go forth with it. So as she's sort of evolving into this post-op situation, she's getting tamoxifen, but she was also getting trastuzumab out to a year? Yes. We do it a year from her first infusion. And how is she doing on each one of those therapies? With the tamoxifen, she's doing very well. She's gotten therapeutic now on the venlafaxine. So from an anxiety standpoint, she's doing well. With the tamoxifen, she's had a little bit of increased vaginal discharge, but otherwise is really doing well with it. And she also continues to do very well with the trastuzumab. We do do an echocardiogram every three months, and that has been stable. And she was deconditioned, so she was noticing she was a little bit more short of breath just when she was trying to get back into an exercise routine. But as she's been working out and trying to increase the duration every day or every session, her deconditioning is also reducing. And where is she right now? She will be done in June. What have you seen in her as a person as she's going through this experience? It's a good question. You know, I've seen her relax, if you will, a little bit, or anxiety is reduced as she's learned more and trying to take control. You know, I think a lot of her anxiety was loss of control. You know, someone's telling you, you have cancer, this is what you should take. You know, if you don't, you could have a risk of recurrence, et cetera. And so a lot of, in our treatment, you know, we talk about control and kind of focusing on little pieces she could to get control back. But I've noticed now since she's gone back to work, which she did once she was cleared from surgery, she has kind of started to spring back to her old self. The anxiety is starting to come down a little bit more. We're getting into a routine where every three weeks she comes for her trastuzumab. Every day she takes her to tamoxifen. And I think that has helped versus when she was on chemotherapy, you know, you get a dose of chemotherapy. She doesn't know how she's going to feel the next day. And she'd have good days and bad days. And now she's having more good than bad. So, you know, you'll see her as she evolves over time, but do you think that maybe she kind of views her life differently in any way, Mm -hmm. more globally? Mm -hmm. We see that from a lot of our survivors. And a lot of them will say, you know, it's amazing what I used to think was a big deal is now nothing. You know, I was faced with my, you know, life or death, and it's amazing to see how my outlook and perspective has changed. And I know as a provider myself, I've noticed that too. But definitely in this patient, I've seen that as well. Interesting. I guess one other thing I was going to ask you about, just in terms of the whole issue of quality of life and side effects, which you know you describe very well in terms of this particular regimen. One of the other regimen that's out there and used more in the post-op setting, the adjuvant setting, is the so-called TP regimen, paclitaxel, trastuzumab as adjuvant therapy. Mm-hmm. No carboplatin as seen with TCH, no anthracycline and a shorter duration of treatment. And we're seeing people use that more, particularly in patients who are, you know, at lower risk, node negative. Have you had experience with that regimen? And what's your observation in terms of quality of life and that experience, as opposed to the other types of adjuvant regimens that we were using and still use? I have one woman that we used that on. She had a T1B, I believe, HER2 positive, ER positive breast cancer and node negative. And so we saw her actually in the neoadjuvant setting as well because the surgeon and the internal medicine physician thought, well, she might be a candidate for neoadjuvant pertuzumab. But because of the small tumor size that was very evident on mammogram, we said, you know, I don't know that she even needs anthracycline. Why don't you take her to surgery? We'll quantify the amount of disease and we'll meet back. So when we met back and it was confirmed that she had 
you know, at less than one centimeter size, HER2 positive breast cancer, node negative, we said, let's do paclitaxel trastuzumab only. And so we did that. And Overall, she did well. She did have some issues with neuropathy, and right before dose number 12, I had seen her before dose number 10, and she was having a little bit of numbness and tingling, but it was coming and going, and it wasn't affecting her activity. She was still going to the gym every day. Then I got a phone call before dose number 12, and she said, you know, I was out last night at a party. I was walking, and I just fell. And I said, well, were you wearing a dress? Were you wearing high heels? She said, no, I was wearing flats. And I said, we're done with paclitaxel because, you know, I was worried that that was a motor neuropathy, and more than likely it was. And so that can happen on any regimen you use paclitaxel and certainly, but in her case, that was her toxicity. And it was unfortunate because our hope was that she really wouldn't have very many toxicities. Because when you think of paclitaxel trastuzumab combined with AC, you imagine the AC is going to cause the biggest issue. But in her case, the paclitaxel did cause motor issues. Now her neuropathy has improved. It's not back to baseline yet, however. Interesting. Let's talk about your 67-year-old lady. Mm-hmm. So she is a 67-year-old woman now, but was diagnosed with breast cancer back in 2002. She had an invasive ductal grade 1, ERPR positive, HER2 negative. She had one of two lymph nodes that were positive. At that time, she was treated with lymphectomy, radiation therapy, and adjuvant tamoxifen. She finished her tamoxifen in 2007. But in 2012, she had called and said, I'm having you know intractable pain in my back and my pelvis. And so we brought her in. We did an x-ray, and it showed some abnormal findings throughout her pelvis bones and in her spine and the lumbar spine. So we flexed to a bone scan which showed disease throughout the skeleton and biopsied that and found it to be ERPR positive, HER2 negative, and then started her on an aromatase inhibitor. So this lady then had gotten five years of tamoxifen, and this is a few years ago that she completed that because maybe subsequently we saw some data saying maybe we should go beyond five years, mm-hmm. but she, like a lot of people in 2007, got stopped. Mm-hmm. She does fine for five years and then all of a sudden has this widespread metastatic disease to the bone and to the liver. What was her life like at the point she was diagnosed with relapse? What was going on? She was active. She was working full time in an antique shop. She was involved with her children's lives. But as the pain started, she started slowing down. And at first she thought, well, maybe it's arthritis. You know, I'm getting older. I'm 67. But when she started having symptoms at night, that's when she gave us a call. And was a biopsy done to confirm the metastatic disease? Yes. Where was the biopsy done and what did it show? We did it in the lumbar vertebrae and it came back with metastatic adenocarcinoma consistent with breast primary and ERPR positive. Both were strongly positive and HER2 negative. What was her life situation in terms of her family? She's widowed and had two adult children that were, I believe, I think they're in their 30s if I recall. How long before that had her husband died and what did he die of? About 10 years earlier and he had a heart attack. Wow. Mm-hmm. So around the same time she had breast cancer originally. Yep. yep. Hmm. And what was her sort of reaction when she found out that 10 years later now she has metastatic disease? You know, she handled it pretty well. You know, I do find that amazing. I think a lot of our women, at least when I see these women... I'm very open and I say, we're going to do this test because I'm worried about X, Y, and Z. And I usually say, you know, in a woman with a history of breast cancer, one that has estrogen-sensitive breast cancer, bony metastases are not uncommon. And so I set them up and I find that when we see them back and we give them that it's positive, it's not quite as much of a shock, 
I don't think, you know, sure, there are some people where a course is just devastating, no matter how you present it. But I have found, like I said, if I, you know, warn them up front and say, you know, we're gonna look for the big bad wolf first, if it's negative, then we'll work on the smaller, more benign issues. They're a little bit more prepared for that potential bad news. What was your evaluation of her coping mechanisms at that point? And what do you typically sort of think about at that point? Her coping was actually pretty good. You know, when I gave her the news, she just kind of shook her head and said, okay, what do we do next? She was with her daughter at that time, and her daughter was also very supportive. Had many questions, but very appropriate questions. And we just walk them through it. We have something at our institution called Pink Ribbon Mentors, who are women who have had breast cancer in the past and can be a source of support. We also, a lot of women have found support groups as well, but we talk it through. And every time I see women, whether they're in curative phase or palliative phase, we talk about what are your sources of support? How is the family doing? Because certainly we know this is not just a disease affecting the patient, but really the whole family. Did she have specific questions about curability? And what do you say to patients in this situation about what to expect? What I usually say is, I say, you know, the treatment that you had originally, so in her case in 2002, our goal was cure. And because we knew that the disease at that time, or believed the disease at that time was confined to the breast only. I say when the cancer spreads outside of the breast, it is more difficult to cure because there are cells that are not quite as focused in one area that we can remove. So I say typically our attention focuses to control. And we talk about, you know, I say this, I realize that this doesn't feel, you know, synonymous with other chronic diseases, but I said, I want you to be able to start thinking about it in terms of hypertension or diabetes, because typically I say women who have estrogen sensitive breast cancer confined to the bone only can live a long time and do very well. You know, and so we talk about treatment options that are control based and usually try to start with the least toxic possible first, if we can. So, you know, this concept of, you know, metastatic breast cancer as a chronic disease is something people talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. But typically, what do you see on average in terms of survival in this situation? You know, it varies. We usually see that the average endocrine therapy lasts about, if you will, 12 months or so. In terms of Overall survival, it varies on how long it takes until they develop visceral disease. That's when we start getting into trouble. I have some gals that I didn't start with their treatment, but I picked them up that have been on endocrine therapy for four or five years and still do not have any evidence of visceral disease. I have others, such as this woman, who progress to uh, visceral organs within a period of you know, 12, 14 months, and then we start really worrying about it. So this patient now is postmenopausal at the age mm-hmm. of 67. She mm-hmm. now has metastatic disease. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues is, is she going to get hormone therapy or chemotherapy first? Mm-hmm. And it was determined that she would get a hormone therapy, I guess, in her situation. What was the thinking there in terms of not giving her chemo? Well, one of them was that we didn't see any visceral disease involved, so we didn't feel that we were in an oncologic crisis or we needed to get disease under control. We didn't believe in it under any imminent life threat at that time. It was confined to the bone only. It was estrogen sensitive, and she'd had a long relapse free time from the time she completed her tamoxifen. So we thought, let's give it a shot with some letrozole and see what happens. And what happened when the letrozole? She started noting improvement in her discomfort within about four weeks or so. We did do a scan at three months, and we did see significant reduction in her overall tumor burden. Any side effects from letrozole on her, and what do you see in general in people on AIs? 
In her, she did pretty well. She had a few, a mild increase in hot flashes, but nothing that, you know, I always ask, is it impacting your quality of life? And she says, no, I can handle it. And I said, okay, we'll continue to monitor. And then we reassess every time. When I do do the education on aromatase inhibitors, regardless of which type we use, I talk about the most common side effects being osteoporosis or osteopenia or loss of bone density. We talk about increase in joint aches and pains, increase in hot flashes as well. But I do counsel them that we know that there's usually more joint aches and pains, hot flashes and vaginal dryness in women who are newly menopausal, and by newly, I've noticed within about 10 years or so, versus those who are menopausal for quite some time as their body has adjusted to that low estrogen environment. So in a patient with symptomatic bone myths, as she was starting to have pain, how do you differentiate, you know, the pain from the metastasis from the arthralgias with the AIs? It's difficult. <laughs> so, you know, I usually talk about what the pain from the AIs typically is an early morning pain or a pain that when you move, it goes away. If you're sitting in a chair for a while, you get up and you're having pain, I say, you know, I'd be like, if you walk, does it improve? Yes. Okay. Then that's probably your aromatase inhibitor. If they say no, then I start to think, hmm, do we need to rescan? Sometimes before we scan, what we'll do is we'll do a little bit of a drug holiday. I'm more comfortable doing a drug holiday in our gals in the curative setting. And what I mean by drug holiday is usually what we'll do is we'll hold the aromatase inhibitor for two or three weeks. And I'll call a patient back at that time and say, okay, how are the joint aches and pains? Are they improved? Are they worse? Are they the same? And then we work through that. And if they're saying they're better, then we talk about either re-challenging with the same aromatase inhibitor or trying an alternative aromatase inhibitor. If they are not better, then usually I'll say, well, if it's still, you know, we can again either try a different aromatase inhibitor or if I'm worried that it could be in the middle of a long bone or middle of a spinous process, I say, let's grab an image now. And, you know, then we'll discuss after I have the image what we're going to do. So she gets letrozole and she has a response. She's feeling better. Then what? Then in about a year, year and a half later, she was starting to have a little bit of abdominal pain. And so we said, well, her labs looked fine. They were perfect. So we said, well, you know, knowing that you have metastatic breast cancer, let's do another scan. And so we did a CT chest abdomen pelvis as well as a bone scan. The bones looked okay. There was some questionable progression. But as you know, bones can be very hard to follow in terms of disease response and progression. The liver did show a 2.2 centimeter mass in the right lobe, if I recall. And so we do not re-biopsy at that time. And our belief is that it will have the same biology as her original metastatic disease, but then we transitioned her to a regimen of exomestane and everolimus. So before we talk about that, what was her life like while she was on the letrozole? Was she working? What was she doing? She was still working. It really hadn't phased her physically. She was doing very, very well. What was her state of mind? She was coping fairly well. You know, we would just talk through it every time I saw her, but she didn't really have any increase in anxiety. We didn't need to enlist a psych with any help in terms of managing that. She did really well, actually. And then what was her reaction when you told her that the disease was getting worse and she now had involvement of the liver? More anxiety. We had talked up front about why we were going to use endocrine therapy with bone only and what our worries are, why we start using chemotherapy in other scenarios. So when I told her it was in the liver, she said, well, do I need chemotherapy? And I said, well, not necessarily. You know, it is in your liver, only in your liver. We're not seeing any liver test dysfunction. We may be able to try a trial of a different aromatase inhibitor along with Everolimus. And she was excited about the idea that it was a pill form and not an infusion. But what I always tell patients is just because it's a pill form doesn't mean it's going to be any easier than an infusion. And so trying to prep them through that too. So there's not any misconceptions that it'll be easy, if you will. 
since it's oral. Was she out there on the internet looking for information, bringing it into you, or kind of just talking to you? Just talking to us. What did you tell her Everlimus was and why it's given with the Meromtase inhibitor XMS thing? It's a mTOR inhibitor, and we discussed that they work synergistically together. And I have to apologize, I cannot recall the specific patho with this, but I believe it, in a way, increases the sensitivity to an aromatase inhibitor. But we talked about using them together, and we discussed that exomethane is a steroidal aromatase inhibitor versus letrozole, which is a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor. And so that one, she also may have a little bit different side effect too, including maybe actually reduction in joint aches or pains or discomfort. And then we went into the side effects with ever Everlimus as well. What did you say to her and what do you typically say to patients who are being started on Everlimus? I tell them that we need to have very, very close lines of communication because the side effects can vary, but you can have very severe side effects and you can do very well. You know, we talk about the most common side effects can be a non-infectious pneumonitis. So I want to know about shortness of breath, coughing. We talk about the risk of stomatitis and when to call us. You know, we give them prophylactic information in terms of baking soda rinses, salt water rinses. But we say, if you start having issues with drinking or eating, we need to know right away because usually that means we need to pause therapy. And so we work through that. That and have, like I said, have those open lines. The most common issues I have seen is the stomatitis. And we used to start right off the bat at 10 milligrams, but some of the physicians are now starting at five because we found that people just can't tolerate the 10 very well. So what happened with this lady? She did pretty well for the first cycle. She did have some oral sores, some oral sores, issues with the eating. And they did reduce when we paused it. They did reduce back to a grade one. But when we tried the 10 milligrams again, it happened again. And we said, no, let's reduce you down to five milligrams. And she's doing okay on that. Again, some issues with oral sores. You know, she keeps saying, I can handle it. I can handle it. And I say, well, you know, quality of life is just as important as quantity in this sense. We don't want you losing weight. And she was losing a little bit of weight because she couldn't eat. And so she's currently on a drug holiday, but we do plan on restarting her on two and a half milligrams here once her oral sores are reduced back down to a grade one. Do you find that patients maybe are hesitant to tell you about symptoms because they're yes. kind of afraid that you're going to yes. stop drugs? Yes. And I tell them, you know, for instance, with paclitaxel, with the neuropathies, I say, you have to tell me because if you don't tell me you're having neuropathy and we keep treating you, we can give you permanent neuropathy. You can have permanent issues with buttoning buttons, zipping zippers, or walking. And the same thing goes for any of these other treatments. You know, trastuzumab, people don't want to tell you if they're having shortness of breath or things like that because they want that trastuzumab, but we want to know about that. And same thing goes with metastatic treatments as well. Now, how long has she been on the Everlimus XMS stain? And do you have any imaging to see what's going on? She began in 2014 and she reduced to the five milligram dose about a cycle or two later. And now we'll be going down to two and a half milligrams here as soon as we get her stomatitis down to a grade one. We don't do a lot of imaging if they're not having symptoms. And in fact, her abdominal pain improved. We did do imaging, however, between the 10 and the 5 milligram dose, and we were seeing reduction in the burden of her liver disease in that one lesion. So she actually is responding. Mm-hmm. And she's been on it now coming up on a year. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Again, what's her state of mind? She's doing okay. She still is working. It seems that the stomatitis is a reminder for her that she has a life-threatening illness because, you know, we've been playing around with this for now a year, trying to find a good spot for her. So you can tell that it's weighing on her a little bit more. But overall, you know, she's very positive. She's like, you know, just tell me what I got to do. Tell me what will make me feel better. And I'm happy to do it. So she's, you know, really coping as well, I think, as you can expect. So how would you compare overall her quality of life on letrozole to exomestine everlimus to what you think would be if she or when she goes on chemotherapy? 
I think, you know, obviously her quality of life right now is not as good as it was in single agent Letrozole because of the stomatitis. My thought would be is if she progresses and we start chemotherapy, usually our first line chemotherapy, if, you know, depending on where the disease goes, but a lot of times if we can, we'll use capecitabine first. Again, because of the simplicity of an oral administration not having to come in for infusions. But again, like with capecitabine, you run into issues with the diarrhea, the hand, foot, and mouth, kind of similar in a way to Everolimus. And I do imagine her quality of life might be a little bit even more poorer on that. But again, you don't know. She may be just very sensitive to the Everolimus and may do better with the capecitabine. Do we know whether or not there's any correlation between symptoms, you know, like mucositis and whether people benefit from Everolimus eczemestane? You know, I don't know that. That's yeah, a really good I was question. just thinking that to myself. I don't remember that anybody's looked at that. You mentioned that you often start out with capecitabine, that, you know, maybe that's where this lady's sort of heading. Can you talk about what you say to patients about to begin capecitabine in terms of patient education? We have a big discussion with capecitabine because, as you know, I mean, you can have significant side effects that are life-threatening on capecitabine. And so I sit down, we give them actually a pill box because we want them to use that pill box to divide their dose because certainly, you know, if you take too much capecitabine, it can be lethal. So we focus a lot on the diarrhea and when to call a provider. You know, we say if you can use loperamide if the diarrhea begins, and we discuss taking two to start and then one after each loose stool. But I say if that's not calming it down, you need to give me a call. I say, if that's not improving, you need to call me and we're going to stop your capecitabine at that point. If it's a weekend, you just stop your capecitabine and you call the oncologist on call. And some of them look at me like, well, then I'm not treating my cancer. And I've told them, I said, you know, we can treat your cancer and give you all the side effects we want, but we're not giving you any quality of life. And in fact, if we're giving you intractable diarrhea, we could actually be shortening your life. So we have a long discussion about diarrhea because it comes back to that thing, like you were saying, you know, how many patients don't tell you side effects because they want to keep going and they don't understand that if they don't tell us these side effects, they can shorten their own lives unintentionally. We also talk about hand and foot quite a bit and recommend a really good, thick, lubricating lotion to the hands and the feet. We recommend covering them with socks when they sleep at night, either their, definitely their feet, but their hands if they can tolerate it. We want to know if they start getting tingling or severe pain, if they become very, very red, or if they start sloughing, because again, we need to stop and let things calm down. And usually we'll start at a lower dose. So let's talk about now your 59-year-old lady who presented with metastatic disease. What happened there? So she came in, she was seeing her primary provider, and they were doing a chest x-ray. The chest x-ray showed a little haziness over the left upper lobe of the lung. So further testing with a CT showed a mass in the lung. They biopsied and it came back. Adenocarcinoma consistent with the breast primary. ERP or negative, HER2 positive by FISH. When they did further breast imaging, they could not find the breast mass. So we don't know where the primary, we never found a primary breast mass, but do have a lung mass that's consistent with metastasis from a breast primary. Any other sites of disease? No, just the lung. And what kind of therapy did she get? She started with a Cleopatra regimen, so she used docetaxel, pertuzumab, trastuzumab every three weeks for six cycles. And I guess we should point out that the Cleopatra was the Cleopatra trial that looked at that combination of trastuzumab, mm-hmm. pertuzumab, and ataxane, which in the Cleopatra trial was docetaxel. Mm-hmm. So this was 2012, and that was around the time, I think, that the information was coming out. She was one of our first ones, actually, in our clinic to use it. Hmm, interesting. And what happened when she was treated? She did well. Of course, lost her hair. She recovered her blood counts very well. We never had any issues with uh, neutropenic fevers, anything like that. We did not use any stimulating factor for her. Overall, she did well. A little bit of neuropathy with the dose attack, so but we were able to make it through with full doses for all six cycles. And what was the next step? 
After she finished the docetaxel, then we did uh, another chest CT, and actually there was no disease. We didn't see any disease at all in the lung. It was all gone. So she had a complete response. She did. It melted. It was really fun to see. And so she continued with the pertuzumab, trastuzumab every three weeks. And we didn't do any routine, you know, our routine scans, we don't really have a protocol for in these settings. But in mid-2014, we decided let's do another scan, just kind of see how things are looking. And sure enough, there was that nodule and then a couple more nodules that were popping up. And so your thinking was that she was progressing on this regimen. What was the next step? We then started using adultrastuzumab emtamsine or TDM1 and started with that regimen. And when you started that with her, which is now, I guess, a typical second-line therapy for metastatic disease, mm-hmm. what did you tell her in terms of what TDM was and what to expect? I tell her that TDM1 is really, you know, in a sense, two drugs bound together. It's a chemotherapy combined with trastuzumab, if you will, and the chemotherapy breaks into the cells and the trastuzumab targets then the HER2 positivity of that. We talked about the biggest issues with this can be potentially some cardiomyopathy and so the necessity for routine echoes, which she was already having on the pertuzumab, trastuzumab. We talked about issues with blood counts, namely platelets, sometimes white blood cell counts, but namely platelets, and that we would be checking blood work before every infusion. And finally, we talked a lot about the potential for liver dysfunction with this regimen. And what about quality of life? What have you observed and what happened with her? People tolerate it wonderfully. It's really nice to see that quality of life can be preserved with this. And in fact, I think she tolerated it better than she did the docetaxel portion of her pertuzumab, trastuzumab first-line therapy. She had a little bit of hair thinning but did not have complete hair loss. She was able to work and was doing actually very well. It still is doing very well. What type of work does she do? She's a secretary. What is her family constellation? She has a husband and two grown children. And where do you think she draws her support mainly from? I think from them. And I think from what I've sensed from what she's told me, she also has a very strong faith and a strong faith community through her local church. And she's referred to them a couple of times. And so I believe they're a real strong source of support for her as well. And what's been going on with her disease since she got started with the TDM1? We did a CT scan about three months after, and it did show, again, regression of her disease. And we just started her on TDM1 in the summer of 2014, and so we did that scan this fall, and we have not rescanned since yet. And what about her blood work during this time? Her liver function did fine. There was no issues with that at all. She did have a delay for one of her cycles, and I can't recall which one it was because her platelets had dipped a little low. They dropped about 30,000 from one cycle to the next, and so she was at about 90,000, if I recall. And I was worried that if we treated her again, she was going to drop another 30,000 and get down to 60,000. So I said, why don't we pause, give you a week off, recheck your blood counts, and they did come back up and retreat. And she's done actually fine since. So I'm not sure why she dropped that during that one cycle, but has now done well since. Have you seen any clinical bleeding, nosebleeds, or major bleeds with TDM1? Not in my patients. I only have two of them, but I know that is something that we obviously are watching closely because of the risk of thrombocytopenia, especially in people who are on blood thinners for other reasons.